Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined, as always, by the great Dan Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic, How's it going, Dan? Happy opening day. Happy opening day. Happy Masters weekend, etc., uh, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, et lots of, lots of things as we approach spring, and by spring I mean the temperatures are in the 90s in Los Angeles, so summer, I guess. No complaints here. I love this time of year. Baseball season. The temperatures rising. It stays light. Later at night, it's great. I love it. I love it so much. I like several of those things, but not the one where the temperature's in the 90s. That one I could personally do away with, but that's just me. Well, anyway, well, this is our 163rd episode. We do not have a showrunner interview this week, but instead we have a ridiculous amount of news to get into, Dan. Lots and lots of stuff to cover, so maybe you'll miss the absence of showrunner, maybe you won't, maybe you'll just be happy to have a, a somewhat short installment of TV's Top 5, just for fun. You know, so they can't all be 95 minutes, maybe next week we'll go back to being 95 minutes, but let's see if we can do this one in under an hour, Leslie. That sounds like a challenge. A challenge extended, Dan. Challenge accepted. Let's lead off with this week's Top Headlines. Number one. It's been a busy week for Apple, as the streamer has handed out a series order for The White Darkness, starring Tom Hiddleston and from Pachinko showrunner Sue Hugh. It marks the Loki favorite's second show for the streamer, as well as Sue Hugh's second show after, obviously, Pachinko. And you can go back a couple episodes and listen to our interview with her. Elsewhere at Apple, Andre Holland will portray Black Panther leader Huey P. Newton in a limited series based on a Playboy article with Don Cheadle set to direct multiple episodes. And Numi Rapace and Jonathan Banks will star in space thriller Constellation for the streamer. There's a little bit more Apple TV Plus news, but we bundled it into a later segment, so we'll talk about that in a little bit. But speaking of Better Call Saul stars, Bob Odenkirk has also said his follow-up project, and he will star in an adaptation of Richard Russo's novel Straight Man at AMC. That would be yet another television show focused on the apparently fascinating lives of college English department chairs. Sure, why not? Um, the cable network has also ordered its long-gestating Orphan Black sequel to series. And speaking of franchises, HBO Max is developing not one, but two shows that are set in the Sherlock Holmes universe, with feature film star Robert Downey Jr. set to exec produce. Word is that the interconnected series will be based on new characters in the upcoming third film in the franchise. Elsewhere, FX has revived Ryan Murphy anthology Feud for a second season with Naomi Watts set to star and Gus Van Sant set to direct the story of Capote's women. And for those keeping score at home, Feud, Bet and Joan last aired in April 2017. So going to have some marketing to do for that one. I just don't know why it's titled Feud, except that I don't know. They they think there's a little bit of brand equity to it, but otherwise, this does not sound anything like what 
Ryan Murphy and company did on Betty and Jones. So whatever. Well, it does give them an opportunity to get Ryan Murphy on yet another show for Disney. So somewhere Netflix execs are going, what the fuck, motherfucker? I suspect they probably are. But yes, that is that is clearly the thing is that if you stick the title feud in front of it, then it becomes legacied into Ryan Murphy's contract as opposed to things he would have to do for Netflix, though, I don't know how much exactly Netflix would be like, ooh, what we want is an adaptation of Capote's Women from Ryan Murphy. But maybe they would just take anything. Anywho. Well, I mean, <laughs> either way, Ryan Murphy plus Disney again. So that that four, that $300 million that Netflix spent on Ryan Murphy looking real questionable right now. Yeah, you know, some people love the politician. Name two. Anyway. No. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, a little conversation with myself there. Um, speaking of Netflix, and not Ryan Murphy, Netflix has picked up the scripted comedy Unstable, starring Rob Lowe and his son, John Owen Lowe, which is inspired by the duo's punchy banter on social media. They're at least vaguely amusing together on press tour panels in the past as well, so... Sure, why not? And the streamer has also revealed that Lock and Key will end with its upcoming third season. Leslie, when, according to your records, did we have our conversation with the showrunners of Lock and Key ahead of the first season? That would be back in episode 58 from February 14th, 2020. And that would be the interview with uh, Carlton Cuse and Meredith Avril. And speaking of closing up shop, FX announced this week that Snowfall has been renewed for its sixth and final season, while Paramount Plus confirmed that season three of Star Trek Picard will also be its last. That would be Star Trek Picard that we had Michael Shabon on the podcast to discuss way back in the day. Any idea when that was, Leslie? Funny you should mention that would be episode 55 from January 24th, 2020. <laughs> this is tremendously fun. I've decided that because we don't have a showrunner spotlight on this episode, I'm just going to reference every single possible one because in casting news, uh, Hulu's penis grad and friend of the podcast, Maya Erskine, what, uh, what podcast episode was that conversation in? That would be episode 87 from September 18th, 2020. Excellent. She has replaced Phoebe Waller-Bridge in Amazon's Mr. and Mrs. Smith update, starring and co-created by Donald Glover. Fair enough. And Harrison Ford will make his ongoing series debut in the Apple comedy Shrinking, which comes from Jason Siegel and Ted Lasso co-creator Bill Lawrence, as well as Emmy winner Brett Goldstein. Leslie, when did we have Bill Lawrence on the podcast? Because there were two of them. Bill Lawrence first joined us August 7th, 2020 in episode 81, came back again to talk about the season two finale, which is still a great interview. That would be episode 139 from October 8th, 2021. And for a bonus... Brett Goldstein appeared excuse on our me, podcast. Excuse me, excuse me, Sorry, 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 sorry. Let me do it again. Sorry. Emmy winner Brett Goldstein joined us to discuss season two of Ted Lasso in episode 129 from July 23rd, 2021. And, you know, since you are making making this a sport, Dan, I do feel obliged to go back and, and plug our Sue Hugh interview. I did say it was a couple episodes ago. That was because it was in episode 160 from March 18th this year. So any others that I missed so far? I don't think so. But I figured that that one was close enough that the kids remembered that one. So, you know, but but. No. 
no well, harm. We in have that. been talking about Better Call Saul, and we did have Vince <laughs> Gilligan and Peter Gold on the show, not once, but twice, because we had one incredible interview done in person at TCA right after they announced that Better Call Saul would be ending. That was split into two halves. The first half, you can go back and listen to it. It's episode 55 from January 24th, 2020. And then the second episode, the part two of that was from episode 60, February 27th, 2020. Oh, We've got a lot of great people on the show, Dan. We really have, and and we're we're plugging them all uh, in absence of an actual new interview this week. <laughs> That's right. We're, and you know what? We're not done with headlines either. So up next, Peacock is teaming with producer and narrator Amy Poehler for a show called The Gentle Art of Swedish Death Cleaning. It's a reality show that its producers say will, quote, transform the way we look at death end quote, or as our colleague James Hibbert in front of the five, James Hibbert said, it's like Marie Kondo for the dying. So this is either going to be a fabulous idea or something really grotesque. Either way, it's a it's Peacock looking to make some noise, which, yeah, that streamer definitely needs to make some noise. And wrapping up on the broadcast front, Fox has renewed The Cleaning Lady for a second season, and ABC is bringing back Bachelor in Paradise. You You'd gotten rid of that one. And Judge Steve Harvey, which I'm not sure I knew existed on ABC, for additional seasons. Yeah, color me surprised that Fox's first live-action scripted renewal was for The Cleaning Lady and not the 911 franchise. So, can't predict them all. True story. True story. Up next. Number two. It's time to play another round of executive musical chairs. This week, the new leadership team at the merged Warner Media Discovery has come into focus. We talked a little bit about this, well, a couple different times when the deal was in the process, but things are coming actually, as we already said, into focus. So what are the headlines and what are the headlines that our listeners will actually be, I don't want to say excited about, so let's go with interested in? I think what's most interesting here is that a couple of the high-level Warner Media execs that were expected to not be with the merged company are indeed not coming back for the merged company. So Jason Kylar is out, and um, and Sarnoff is also out. Those were among the high-ranking execs who will not remain with the merged Warner Brothers Discovery. That deal is expected to close imminently. Hell, the deal may close by the time this podcast comes out tomorrow. We're recording this now. It's about Thursday, about 1230. So... Anyway, what's interesting for our listeners is that, that a lot of the content execs, Casey Bloys, who we talk about all the time, he oversees HBO and HBO Max, he's staying put. Channing Dungey, who's in charge of the Warner Brothers Television Studio, staying put. And on the film side, Toby Emmerich continues to oversee Warner Brothers Pictures. Um, in the more nuts and bolts, you've got a Discovery exec named Kathleen Finch, who's going to oversee all of Warner Brothers Discovery's linear channels, including TNT and TBS and Cartoon Network and True TV, etc., and you've got the current Warner Media execs, Brett Weitz and Tom Asham, are going to report into T Discovery's Nancy Daniels, who in turn is going to report into Kathleen Finch. So, in the grand scheme of things, if I'm going to break this down into real English, the programming side is not going to change, at least for now. And you've got David Zaslav is going to eliminate that other layer that had Sarnoff and all these big executives like Bloys and Dungy reporting in to Sarnoff. And then Sarnoff was re reporting into Kylar. And then Kylar was obviously re reporting into Sankey. And now that's all those 
those upper layers of management are all being shaken up. So now you've basically got Casey and Channing and co reporting directly into David Zaslav. He is going to get his hands dirty on this. He wants to be immersed in the scripted world. You know, Discovery had tried in the last couple of years, maybe not the last recently, but they had tried a couple of different times, at least since I've been doing this in the last decade, to get into the scripted area. It didn't exactly work out well. Um, but now you've got one of the biggest companies combined and you look at Discovery Plus and HBO Max and at some point will merge. You're going to have one supersized streamer. It's all about scale. We've talked about scale and the importance of that and franchises and everything else so many times on this show. I feel like a broken record. But yeah, this is basically business as usual for a lot of these top execs. But on the on the corporate side, you're going to see a lot of the, the Discovery ex executives take over for Warner Media people on, on the business side of things. So basically, David Zaslav bringing his inner circle from Discovery in on the business side and then leaving a lot of the creative as is, at least for the time being. But yeah, Casey Bloys, I'd be stunned if he goes anywhere but up in the merged company. Okay, so when we get to the end of this podcast, kids, we're going to have a quiz on all of the full reporting structure at Warner Media and Discovery. <laughs> you can't see Leslie right now, but she's standing in front of a Carrie Matheson-style murder board with everybody. I prefer to think of it more as the L-word board with each person connected. See, that I, that I can't do. I can do Carrie Matheson murder board, or I can do uh, the uh, gift that everybody loves of Charlie Day from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia being all conspiratorial. Those are the those are the wait, two wait, things wait. I what can was, do. There was that great NBC comedy. What was it called? Trial and Error. What what did they used to always chant? Murder board, murder board. Am I getting that right? Uh, I mean, are you getting right that there was a great NBC comedy? It was very fun. <laughs> it was very fun. <laughs> there was definitely an NBC uh, comedy called that that was sometimes amusing. There is no question about that. But the so, chant was murder board, right? They had the dry erase board, it, the big murder board, it sounds right? Very, it sounds very possible. And so, yes. So Leslie has her own executive murder board with all sorts of yarn that she's currently wrapping things around. And uh, yes, we will have a quiz on that uh, at the end of the podcast. And the winner will get absolutely nothing because it's not actually happening. S spoiler alert. I, I don't have a murder board. Um, spoiler alert, there is no quiz because I don't even think I would I would pass that quiz right now. It's so like it's so confusing. I'm 100% anyway. positive I would, but that's because I'm looking at the outline right now and I would be probably likely to cheat. Well, I mean, I, I do have a, a sketched out uh, executive hierarchy notepad for Disney, which looks like someone insane created that so i also have one for pretty much everyone else and now my my challenge will be to make one for uh warner brothers discovery but the disney one in particular is a full page and it even as someone who made it and who understands the hierarchy there still doesn't make a complete and total sense it, it looks like the drawings of a crazy person yeah, so I mean, that is what's, what's interesting too <laughs> if we want to get back in, into this and bring this segment all around is this takes out some of the upper layers of these corporate structures. And you've got David Zaslav getting more hands-on. When you look at a lot of these other companies, there's a massive, massive bloat at the top. It's very top-heavy when you look at, at the org charts for Disney, specifically, or NBC Universal, et cetera. So I'll, I'll be interested to see how, you know, if if Warner Brothers Discovery does bring in someone under David Zaslav. I mean, obviously, we've heard the Peter Rice rumors for a long time, but... As of right now, that's not happening. So I'll be it'll be curious to see if in the long term it, it stays this lean and mean. Up next. Number three. As the Academy Awards are still embroiled in Slapgate after Will Smith's resignation from the Academy, the Emmys have announced a timeline for this year's ceremony. Good times. 
This year, the Emmys will air on September 12th on NBC. And yes, if you're some sort of very, very peculiar calendar savant, uh, that is indeed a Monday. 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 Now, of course, it should be noted that the Emmys are always on Monday when they're on NBC because NBC has Sunday Night Football and Sunday Night Football does better for NBC than other stuff. So I believe this pretty is, much everything. Yeah, pretty much everything. I believe this is early enough in the season that it would still be preseason football. But even still, guess what? Preseason football does better than the Emmys, the Emmys. or anything else. So, anything else. So, yes. So that everything would be, else. <laughs> eh, you know, maybe not everything else. Hey, the, the Academy Awards did 15 million-ish viewers, and the Grammys did slightly fewer, and the Grammys, at least if nothing else, managed to air a telecast that had people going, hmm, that was fairly well produced, as opposed to a, <laughs> as opposed to a ceremony that had everyone reflecting, my goodness, that was a three-plus-hour clusterfuck. So, uh, so congratulations to the Grammys for not doing anything worthy of being a topic on this week's podcast. You must be so <laughs> proud. <laughs> I don't know. It's like it's like the thing on uh, that everyone says on Twitter all the time that I don't know who gets credit that uh, that every day there's a person who's the main character on Twitter and your goal is not to be that person. Uh, similarly, your goal if you do an award show this at this point is to have people only discussing the ratings on the day after and moving on with their lives two days later. So way to go, Grammys. <laughs> Yeah, you know, in terms of the Emmy timeline, as we've previously discussed, programs that have aired between June 1st, 2021 and May 31st of this year are eligible to compete. Dan, we did a big uh, April TV preview, and we also noted that there's so much going on this month, but May is even more batshit. So you want to know why April and May are batshit? This is why. Yep, we we have definitely talked about this multiple times and probably we'll talk about it again, but definitely it's the, you know, it's the exact same thing that the movie calendar has been like for years with, you know, things attempting to get one week rollouts the week before New Year's and all of that so that they get Emmy eligibility and as a result you have half seasons of Stranger Things popping up on the 27th and then you have I, uh, May, this is, um, and just other random things popping up at the end of the month, just hoping to, you know, sneak in under the under the wire. And in one or two cases, like, for example, Obi-Wan Kenobi, as we discussed last week, there's going to be some question about, you know, the notorious hanging episodes and other random things like shows being eligible in certain acting categories and technical categories but not being eligible in series categories because they haven't aired enough episodes for that. I'm not really sure what the count is going to be on Obi-Wan Kenobi, if it's going to be series eligible or if it's just going to be eligible for, I don't know, guest acting nominations, if that's a serious thing, or technical nominations. Basically, it's kind of the, the Handmaid's Tale rule. Like there was the year three years ago where Handmaid's Tale got like a dozen nominations for a year that they hadn't actually aired a season because they'd aired just enough episodes in a... Uh, you know, sort of a window in June of whatever year to get a bunch of nominations for things like that. So lots and lots of programming coming up in the next two months. It's kind of exhausting. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, back to the Emmys, though, there's no host. And obviously, NBC is going to have to choose someone from its stable to to oversee that ceremony as it attempts to to avoid a slapgate scenario. You have some ideas in this space, Dan. I don't have that many ideas. I have I have a couple ideas. So, okay, so the first thing we always have to do is kind of look at precedent and and think of who the possibilities are to host the Emmys. And so traditionally, a network will choose somebody in their comedy space. And NBC always has options. So the most recent year that they had the Emmys, which would have been the 2018 Emmys, they had Michael Che and Colin Jost host. I vaguely remember that that was a thing that happened. I, I feel as if the conclusion or response to that was it was slightly better than we thought it might have been. I like I really don't remember, which, again, going back to what I was just saying about the Grammys, if I don't remember your telecast as being a total disaster, <laughs> you're doing that, it right. You're, you're just not doing it wrong. And that's a plus. So uh, but before that, they, of course, had Seth Meyers do it on in the 2014 telecast and they had Jimmy Fallon do it in 2010 and then. I mean, then you're going back before that to a couple years in a row that Conan O'Brien hosted because NBC was very, very excited because uh, uh, Conan O'Brien was going to take over The Tonight Show and it was really going to change the uh, the NBC late night space and it was going to be very exciting for everybody. So, I and again, just like I don't remember what happened with Colin Jost and Michael Che hosting the Emmys, I, I don't really remember what happened with uh, with Conan O'Brien and The Tonight Show, but I'm sure it was great. Well, I mean, Conan's over at Warner Media. <laughs> So that's not going to happen. No. So who who do you think could be, you know, NBC could turn to? I mean, obviously, with when, with the Oscars airing on ABC, they went with Amy Schumer, who, of course, has her show for Hulu, which is, of course, owned by ABC. Well, with the Oscars, of course, because it doesn't vary in location, they have a little bit more wiggle room. They haven't been quite as beholden on having somebody from within the family, though Jimmy Kimmel has hosted multiple times and has at this point established a reputation as being a proficient host of multiple things because he obviously has hosted the Emmys as well when they've been under the ABC banner. Um, I suggested on Twitter last week that my pick if I had a pick, would be Amber Ruffin, who, of course, is a, you know, writer and regular uh, contributor to Seth Meyers' show and also has her own Peacock show. She is in the family and she is someone who, realistically, my feeling is that she's probably a couple years away from having the public visibility that they might want. And if they choose not to have her host, that would be the explanation is is she really ready to host the telecast? Is she ready? Of course she is. But is she visible enough? Is she a big enough name? Maybe, maybe not. I, to, to me, it doesn't matter. If I were NBC, I would have Amber Ruffin host the telecast. I think it's probably more likely they'll go to Jimmy or Seth again and have Amber Ruffin make an appearance, which would be just fine as well. I, to me, she's kind of the obvious choice. She is someone who is extremely funny, extremely good at at riffing off the top of her head, extremely good at being both light when necessary and also pointed. She's done musical numbers. She's done dance numbers. She can pretty much do anything. Uh, whether, again, though, NBC thinks that having Amber Ruffin hosting the Emmys telecast is going to boost ratings, I don't know that she would, but I think 
in terms of would it help the visibility of her Peacock show? Well, yes, of course it would. So it comes down to what you're looking for. And I think that Amber Ruffin is is truly fantastic. And I would be, if I were NBC, more enthusiastic about getting to boost a Peacock property than hoping to boost the Emmys, which will simply be what they will be ratings wise. Uh, right. you, you had a fine suggestion when we were uh, brainstorming this one. Yeah, my suggestion was The Rock because he's got a big overall deal at uh, NBC Universal, obviously stars in, in his own scripted comedy, Young Rock, produces a couple of unscripted shows across that spectrum, too. And, you know, if anyone wanted to get up from the audience and, and take a, a, a whack at someone, he could probably come out and control the situation. So there's that. And then uh, in terms of other ideas, if you're supporting talent from the broadcast network, I mean, Keenan Thompson is right there. Obviously, the longest tenured SNL member has his own show on the on the broadcast network. But my long, deep seated hope, which is a complete and total long shot, is that the cast of Girls Five Eva hosts because I love that show. I love their dynamic, and I just they can do it all. So to to me, that but only like six people know about Girls Five. Eva, but I so. think that's the kind of thing where where they could certainly. Uh, do a musical performance, and I think that would make people happy. I think as individual members, several of them are bigger names than Amber Ruff, and I, I think Keenan is a fine answer. I think he would be. I think he would be great. When I when I suggested Amber Ruffin on Twitter, immediately somebody uh, came to me and said, "That sounds like Who? a good idea." No, no, someone <laughs> came to came and said it would be a good idea. Now you'll just have to be frustrated when it ends up being Pete Davidson, which. Yeah, no, it, it is what it is. I, I don't, to my mind, Pete Davidson would not be likely to establish the level of energy that is required to oversee a three plus hour telecast, whereas Amber Ruffin absolutely is a basic human ball of energy and therefore would surely make it amusing to go through three hours with her popping up periodically and then vanishing in the last hour as hosts do. Uh, so we'll I see. Mean other options, Kate McKinnon could probably do it if she's got the time, um, you know, and if we really want to be out there, you know, with a, a batshit crazy scenario. And if NBC really wants to boost one of its quote unquote biggest shows for Peacock, Will Smith is an executive producer of Bel Air, which is, allegedly is a big hit for the streamer. So I somehow I don't think, think there's any chance of hell that that happens. No, but I mean, I'd be remiss if I didn't even float it. When you look at the roster of people that, that are out that that have shows affiliated with NBC or Peacock, that's I mean, it, it jumps right out. I mean, Seth MacFarlane's got a Ted show in the works for Peacock. He could do it. He could. And he's done it in the past and or he did the Oscars. I don't know. I don't think he's done the Emmys and he did. He did the Oscars and. Yeah, that was definitely. I mean, MacGruber could host it. I then again, that show hasn't been renewed yet, has it? It hasn't been renewed yet, and I don't know that necessarily anyone required it to be renewed immediately. I feel like that's the sort of thing where when Will Forte has an idea and wants to do something, either Peacock is going to say, oh, yeah, no, no, we've got too many hits and we don't need something from Will Forte and Lorne Michaels. <laughs> or I mean... Yeah. I mean, there's also Craig Robinson, who has a new show coming out on Peacock called Killing It think, from the producers of, of uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I think Craig Robinson would be amusing. The question of whether he's kind of of the status that they're looking for is something else. But 
you know, he, he obviously is experienced hosting things and has a wide range of, of talents. Anyway, I think we've, I think we've now pretty conclusively proven that there are lots of options. And therefore, if it's Jimmy Fallon hosting the Emmys, we burn everything to the ground. I think I think that's Fair. about what it is. Is uh, is there are lots NBC? You got lots and lots of great choices. Let's not go with Jimmy Fallon. Fair. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Number four. Up next this week, two of the spring's most dissected shows have earned somewhat surprising renewals this week. HBO has picked up Lakers drama Winning Time for a second season and provided absolutely no information about if the story of the 1980s Showtime-era Lakers will continue on or if season two will explore the Kobe Bryant-Shaquille O'Neal era of the franchise, which was also documented in a follow-up book by author Jeff Perlman, who, of course, wrote the book on which season one was based. And HBO, of course, has the option on that. Dan, you've seen a bunch of the episodes that have yet to air. What do you know about where the rest of the season goes, and what do you think season two of Winning Time could look like? Well, I think it really and truly does depend on whether they feel like they like this story and they like the people in it or they need to jump to another colorful version of this Lakers world. And I, you know, I don't know when we had Max Bornstein on the podcast, which episode was that? That would be episode 158. He really did not tell us what the next season was going to be. He oh, was, no, 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 no. <laughs> he was very... He, he dodged that question. He gave a great answer, but he completely dodged the question with a basically, we'll see, and, and a story about how much he's born and raised in L.A., which, <laughs> you know, who isn't? I, I say that as a native, and you can all, you know, only natives can make fun of natives. But, um, yeah, he didn't answer the question, uh, you know, of if season two would, would continue on with Showtime. But instead, he he gave an, a great answer for why he started the show with Magic Johnson's declaration that he was HIV positive and the impact that had on a larger society. And I think that that was a good answer, but it didn't tell us anything about season two. And and so you look at where things are going clearly in this first season and without spoiling where anything goes, we appear to be heading towards the 1980 NBA finals and Things happened there that are memorable to NBA fans. And that's probably a great end to a first season. The question then, though, becomes, are you going to the next season? Are you going a couple years forward and it becomes, you know, James Worthy enters the picture. Uh, you know, Pat Riley actually steps up and becomes the 
coach, there have been lots of hints throughout this season, <laughs> sort of amusing the way that the show uses Adrian Brody slicking back his hair and removing his mustache as foreshadowing, as if to say, oh, yes, one day this dorky, scrawny guy will become the slick, uh, you know, beloved Showtime Lakers impresario. So either you go maybe a year or two in the future and and do one of those Lakers teams with Pat Riley as actual Pat Riley and the Lakers championship team as as people know them. And then you can kind of keep the bird magic rivalry going because that's a fun thing. Or maybe if you view it as being maybe only a couple seasons in this world before going to uh, Kobe Shaq, maybe you skip forward back to the framing device of Magic's HIV diagnosis, which uh, Max Bornstein presents here as being kind of the end of this era for the Lakers. So I, I don't know. It, it comes down to do they view this as being a 10-season show or do they view this as being a three-season show? I I don't know that we have an answer to it. And so I'm at least curious. But yes, as you say, the press release that HBO put out with the renewal and the answer Max Borenstein gave us about future seasons are equally vague and evasive and borderline meaningless, which is just fine. Uh, but yeah, I, I've been amused. People are definitely talking about the show. Some people are talking about it in very negative senses. Some people are talking about it in positive senses. I would say it feels to me, and this is only in my bubble and it's pure perception, that uh, the feelings about the show maybe were a little waffly in the beginning where people were maybe not as enthusiastic about the Adam McKay aesthetic choices and maybe a little tired with of the fourth wall breaking and all of that. But in recent episodes, people have been more enthusiastic. Also, the first week or two, people really, really, really wanted to take umbrage on Jerry West's behalf. And it doesn't seem as if people are quite as I don't know, enthusiastic to do that anymore or that they feel, felt the need to pick up the banner for anyone else who is depicted as differently quirky and potentially negatively in the series because lots of people surely are. So, yeah, I, I feel like people are pleased with the show and it will be interesting to see. I don't know if this is a show that gets any Emmy traction. I don't I don't have any way of predicting that. I don't know that it's been received enthusiastically in quite that way, but it could, who knows? So anyway, I'm mostly enjoying it. And, uh, despite unlike the actual Lakers season this year, uh, exactly. As, as our colleague Rick Porter noted this, this came in the same week that the Lakers were mathematically eliminated from even borderline playoff contention. And so, you know, if you're a Lakers fan, at least you still have this, uh, nostalgic version of when things were better than this season. Yeah. Elsewhere, Apple has picked up the workplace thriller Severance for a second season with the Adam Scott drama wrapping its first season this week. Dan, a lot of people on my timeline have been talking about how great this show is and how much they're enjoying it. Personally speaking, I couldn't get through the pilot. It was just a little too much for me. It's, you know, it's kind of a show that no matter what you expect it to be, it's not exactly that show. And no matter what you need it to be, it's not exactly that show. Now, I find that to be a positive thing about it. But if you're of the mood, and I know that you have been for, I don't know, about two years now, of, of preferring your entertainment to be a little bit more positive and upbeat, 
which is a fully reasonable thing. It is not the, it is not the most positive and upbeat show because it's about obsessions with work and uh, the draining capacity that can have on our humanity. And that's not necessarily the most positive thing in the world. Also, as I said in my review, and as I said, you know, on the podcast a couple times, the show goes through a tonal transition. I would say that the first couple episodes were probably more in the dark comedy range. And then I would say that the last couple episodes of the season are much more clearly in the thriller slash, not exactly horror, but borderline horror realm. So uh, to me, the last couple episodes, I definitely saw a few people on Twitter asking about kind of slow patches in the middle. And I think that there is a, a bit of slowness in the middle where they're basically attempting to make you care about the people on the show, God forbid, and some of the relationships. And they're saying, here, we would like for you to invest in the relationship between John Turturro's character and Christopher Walken's character. I did. If you didn't, that's fine. And by you, I mean collective people, not you, Leslie. Uh, but the the, the finale is a, is a really, really entertaining, fast-moving, tight episode. And I never thought for a second that it wasn't going to get renewed because I've seen the finale and I know that if they hadn't renewed it, there would have been an uprising. I'm a little bit surprised by the decision to wait until the last week, but that's just a strategic choice. Everyone does their own way. Some, you know, some networks are prone to re renewing things before the premiere because, again, it's another wave of promotion for their shows. And that's what this is as well. It's saying, you know, everyone's doing their their postmortems on the finale and doing interviews and all of that good stuff. And they're also now saying, OK, but don't worry <laughs> if if we leave you hanging a tiny bit and as fair warning, it does leave you hanging on a lot of questions. Uh, don't worry, it's coming back for a second season. So I am not the least bit surprised it got renewed because, again, we would have had to have burnt the whole place down. Maybe not on quite the same level as if NBC chooses Jimmy Fallon to host the Emmys. But yeah, so Apple at this point is doing, I mean, Apple's having a pretty spectacular spring, all things considered. Uh, you know, Best Picture Oscar winner some of the year's most acclaimed shows in Pachinko and Severance, and then a bunch of shows that have been simply warmly received. So something like Slow Horses, I don't think it's the kind of show that is going to cause huge waves of new subscribers to Apple TV+. But as I said in my review, it's exactly the kind of show that you need to have as part of your library, because I think people who subscribed for a dozen other reasons can simply go, oh, and here's six episodes of a really good spy dark comedy with Gary Oldman. Sure, I can do that too. Apple has really had a very, very good spring, and I don't think anyone there has done anything to cause me to distrust them enough to have believed that they could have canceled this one, especially given the level of acclaim it's gotten, given where the finale goes. Number five. Wrapping up this week, as usual, with the Critics' Corner. Among this week's major new launches, you've got 61st Street airing on AMC. Tokyo Vice debuts on HBO Max. Season 2 of Woke returns on Hulu. My, one of my favorites, Elite, on Netflix is back. And a Black Lady sketch show returns for more on HBO. Dan, lots of former TV's Top 5 guests coming back. What do you got for us this week? I feel like I want to give you time to, uh, to dig up a couple... Um 
a couple episodes so that we know when we had people from different shows. Well, our very, very first showrunner spotlight was from episode 31 from July 25th, 2019, with Robin Thede talking about a black lady sketch show. In terms of woke, we had director Mo Marabal on for episode 85 from September 4th, 2020. What else? Did I miss something? I don't think. I think that's it. Uh, not from, a, well, so far. I mean, we from did me. also have 61st Street uh, creator Peter Moffat on the podcast, so... Yes, that would be from episode 98, December 4th, 2020. Talking about Your Honor. so mm-hmm. Which is also coming back for season two at some point. Somewhat confusingly, given that it was announced very prominently as a limited series. And Listen, hold on. Time out. <laughs> Time out. Before we get to Critics Corner, I just want to address the, the quote-unquote limited series. That doesn't mean what anyone thinks it means anymore. Limited doesn't mean closed-ended. It means less than 22 episodes, which, in case you haven't been paying attention, everything is limited now. And while I understand that on an intellectual level, on an award-giving level, that's not the way that they define that. And therefore, no, 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 no. And therefore, it becomes huge confusion because Brian Cranston was nominated for a Golden Globe for actor in a limited series for Your Honor. I mean, the stars of Big Little Lies swept everything in that category for season one, and then it got renewed. Yeah, I, re- I remain annoyed about that, but I've gotten over it. It happens. <laughs> anyway, so yes, 61st Street. Uh, comes from Peter Moffat, and you, of course, vividly remember our interview with Peter Moffat, who was really good, uh, talking about Your Honor. And if you watched Your Honor, and if you liked Your Honor, probably chances are decent that you're going to like 61st Street, because it's uh, it's very similar. What, what Peter Moffat does, and it's becoming more and more clear as he does more shows for American TV, is he really does do shows that have a certain emotional depth and a certain ethical depth. And I appreciate that. And those elements give actors really good roles to play. On the other hand, his narrative sense is very much prestige TV in a blender. So your honor really did feel like 15 other prestige TV shows and 61st street also does it in fact, feels a lot like Your Honor. It, in fact, feels a lot like uh, The Night Of, which was based on a British series by Peter Moffat. It is about a public defender played by Courtney B. Vance, who finds himself representing a young track star who is railroaded by a corrupt Chicago justice system uh, when a cop dies as part of a trumped-up drug bust. And so Courtney B. Vance defends him, and I don't know, not hilarity ensues. There's actually no hilarity at all. It's it's very, very miserable as such things go, um, and high drama. It's also very, very familiar. It's uh, part of Peter Moffat's thing also is doing eight to ten episode series that basically NBC could do in a single episode of Law and & Order. And the advantage here is that you get performances. And so you get Brian Cranston chewing scenery in, in your honor. And that's just fine. Why, you know, who wouldn't want to watch that? And similarly here, you get Courtney B. Vance having a ball with a character who's got like 15 different dramatic whatever's uh, he's he's got a a health diagnosis that he's waiting on in the first episode that causes him to be in constant pain 
he's got the whole court case. Uh, he and his wife, played by Anjanou Ellis, have a, a son with autism who is causing only semi-related drama throughout, but definitely a lot of drama. Um, so th- it's kind of a hat on a hat on a hat on a hat in terms of dramatic structure. And that's a lot of what Peter Moffat does is everything is kind of overcomplicated to the point at which you kind of lose track of the story that's being told. On the other hand, really enjoy watching Courtney B. Vance being front and center in a series. Uh, Anjanou Ellis, who just got a well-deserved Oscar nomination uh, for the movie that that Will Smith, Smith uh, slapped the person for. Um, no, not G.I. Jane. Anyway, though, whatever. Uh, she's, she's always fantastic. She, so you've also, in this case, got um, a little Lovecraft Country reunion happening with Courtney B. Vance and Anjanou Ellis. Anjanou Ellis plays, as I said, the main character's wife who is running for Chicago elected office. They're a little fuzzy on what it is, but she's really great. And the supporting cast is very solid. You've got uh, Holt McElhaney, uh, who's, you know, always great. If you haven't seen Lights Out, Somehow you should see it. I don't. Yeah, it. man. Watch Lights Out. It's, on, it's streaming on Hulu. <laughs> Is it on Hulu? I thought it was one of those that maybe wasn't on Hulu. Uh, but anyway, it's a really, really good show. And one of those one of those very, very sad, abrupt FX cancellations came at the basically at the same time as the Terriers cancellation. Uh, you have Mark O'Brien, who's done a lot of very good things. Halt and Catch Fire, City on a Hill. Um, it's it's a really good cast. Some of the shooting in Chicago is good. It's so narratively familiar that it it becomes a little bit exhausting at a certain point. And I, I can't wholly endorse it because I, I just felt like I'd seen everything in it before. I just hadn't seen everything in it with Courtney B. Vance and Anjanou Ellis top of the billing. So that is a thing that's premiering this weekend and a thing that, you know, lights out. Like Terriers is indeed streaming. It is. Okay. On Hulu. Good. Excellent. You should definitely watch it. And, and for some both. reason. Watch both. Yeah. If you haven't seen Terriers. But I mean, seriously, at this point, if Alan Seppenwall hasn't made you watch Terriers at this point, <laughs> chances are good you're probably never going to watch Terriers. So let's transition and have you watch Lights Out because it's a really, really good show. Uh, so anyway, continuing. Uh, Tokyo Vice is being referred to as Michael Mann's Tokyo Vice, I, I feel as if that is an overstatement and a good path to disappointment. It is actually created by J.T. Rogers, playwright behind Oslo, uh, and it is based on the book by Jake Adelstein, and uh, it is about a young American journalist in Tokyo who, rather than working for the local bureau of the AP or whatever, decides to report for an actual Japanese newspaper um, where he is the first foreigner to work at the newspaper. Um, It is still unavoidably a white guy in a foreign land learns the culture and learns the way of the foreign land show. There is there is no getting past that this is a representative of a genre that is probably at this particular point Let's just say outmoded. Um, but once you get past that and maybe get past the fact that it stars Ansel Elgort, who is, if we're leaving his personal life and whatever out of things entirely, is simply a bland, okay actor. And that is all he is. And, you know, 
he's the centerpiece of the show. Uh, but you also have people like Ken Watanabe, who is a much, much, much better actor and a much more compelling actor, but unfortunately is here playing second fiddle to Ansel Elgort. You have um, the Society and Legion and Fargo favorite Rachel Keller, who I always enjoy, um, also here playing second fiddle to Ansel Elgort. Um, Oscar nominee Rinko Kikuchi, who also is very, very good here playing second fiddle to Ansel Elgort. So that's kind of the theme throughout the entire show is you're going to find yourself liking one character after another, after another, and you're going to find yourself wishing that each one of those characters was actually the star of the show. Instead, it's Ansel Elgort. Um, Michael Mann did direct the pilot. He did not direct any subsequent episodes. And the pilot looks like it was directed by Michael Mann. And then subsequent episodes don't anymore. And that is just how it goes. They're still very handsomely shot. The uh, production in Tokyo is exemplary. And so there's a lot to be enjoyed there. But if you're coming in for the Michael Mann of it all and you like his particular style and all of that, you're going to get it for one episode. And then it will just become a good looking, decently paced show with a strange vapid centerpiece and you have to decide if that matters to you or not um it, it appears that a lot of people seem to like it a hair more than i do which is totally fine because i like a lot of it i've seen five episodes i believe and I, I found it entertaining i just maybe didn't find it quite as i don't know gripping as i would have liked to have so it goes um and yeah, I always enjoy Black Lady Sketch Show. I haven't watched the new episodes, but I'm looking forward to watching more of them. And I think that may be all that we're going to cover in this week's podcast. But there is a lot coming out next week. So, God, so much TV. Well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to his newsletter, THR's Now See This, and bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews for all all things from Master Feinberg and our brilliant colleagues, Robin Barr and Angie Hahn and everyone else on Team THR TV Reviews. And this feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. It helps spread the word of mouth. We're always happy to hear from you guys on Twitter. Come say hi. Let us know what's working, what isn't working, whatever. It's all good. If you have questions for future mailbag segments, though, you can email us at TV's Top 5 at THR.com. That's TV's Top 5, the numeral 5, at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next time, Dan. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> 